0: Podcast number 574 for the 7th of January, 2018. This week, Cyber Reason Chief Security Officer Sam Curry, while acknowledging the many security disasters of 2017, is hopeful that 2018 might be the year when defense gets the upper hand. We'll talk with him about how to make that happen. In short circuits, this week we learned that every Intel CPU manufactured in the past 10 years has a serious security flaw. Fixing that flaw will require operating system changes that will make your computer slower. Light bulbs seem decidedly low-tech, but recent advances are producing bulbs that can save money by using far less electricity than old technology bulbs. In spare parts, only on the website, the music streaming service Spotify plans to go public in the first half of 2018 and will use an unusual method for its IPO. If you have a teenager, how many social media accounts does he or she have? There's a good chance you don't know about all of them. And we'll reveal the second half of Dashlane's Top 10 Worst Password Offenders for 2017 and then explore three things we can do to avoid being password bunglers. The final program of 2017 looked back at some of the primary security challenges, not to say disasters, of 2017. Disasters would probably be more accurate, though. Well, now it's time to take a look at what we might reasonably expect in 2018. Sam Curry, Chief Security Officer at Cyber Reason, says he hopes this will be the year of defense. In an hour-long conference call, he explained, and today's program will cover the main points, Curry's background includes 25 years in the security business. Cyber Reason is a company I've written about occasionally. The company is relatively new, and it provides both paid services for businesses and a free application for individuals. Ransom-free costs nothing. Anyone can download it and install it. The objective is to detect attempts to encrypt or destroy files on your computer and then shut the operation down before it can do any serious damage. I have eliminated most third-party protective applications on my Windows computers, and I rely on Microsoft's Windows Defender. That's because I feel the operating system developer is in the best position to provide protection. So my computers no longer have Norton Antivirus or AVG or any of the other resource-hogging applications, but I do bolster Windows Defender with two additional applications, Malwarebytes and RansomFree, both of which work without getting in each other's way and without causing problems for Windows Defender. Or if you use any of the other third-party protective applications, those two applications run just fine with them, too. RansomFree watches for activities that indicate malware is at work by targeting the common behavior of ransomware. The company says this allows it to protect users by detecting ransomware, suspending the activity, And then displaying a pop-up that warns users that their files are in danger. Users can then halt the attack. The process involves directories and files that RansomFree creates on the user's computer. The files are small, they're updated frequently. To malware, these look like recent data files. So when the malware takes the bait, RansomFree warns the user. I think it's a clever approach. Even so, Curry says that Ransomware and Destructionware, both of which we saw in 2017, probably are not the new normal.
1: Ransomware and destructionware are both very specific tools, very blunt tools, a lot like DDoS is. They actually do damage. They actually hurt. But I don't think that those are actually significant long-term trends. Yes, we'll see it. Yes, we have to avoid it. And it may have have taken some of the discussion, elevated it to the board level, or, or maybe even changed some of the CISO's priorities in the public eye. But I think that those are Those are not things that I would call out as, gee, this is the new face of of security going into 2018. But ransomware, very big this year. Destructionware, very big this year. And it did change the dialogues within companies about risk. And it did change the the dialogue about what CISOs are ultimately responsible for in the public
0: interest. Instead, Curry believes that crooks will spend most of their time developing and executing what he refers to as supply chain attacks. He's referring to attacks that target companies that supply goods and services to other companies. Most large companies now have sufficient protective measures in place to identify and halt direct attacks on their system, but smaller companies that supply the larger companies often have weaker defenses, so the objective is to move the attack to a weak link in the supply chain. If a vendor has access to a client corporation's network, it's possible to stage an attack from outside. So the bottom line for 2018 is this. Expect something bad to get through your defenses and plan your recovery process now. As scary as that sounds, it's really good advice. The bad guys will continue to try anything and everything they can to breach your defenses. Even if you stop 99.9% of the attacks, or even 99.9999% of the attacks, you are eventually going to find an intruder on your network. Accept that. Determine what you'll do when that happens, not if. Curry says crooks need to become more efficient because the cost of ill-gotten data has plummeted. Once, stolen medical records might have fetched hundreds of dollars, but now might yield less than $10 each for thieves. As a result, crooks increasingly will attack supply chain vendors because this will increase their reach. What will be needed in 2018, he says, is more attention to the access that outside companies have.
1: You should think of a of a ratio. the The numerator is the return, and the denominator, that the bottom number, is the cost. And what we're seeing is the cost is dropping. And I often talk about security being the cost to break something is a pretty good a pretty good proxy for it. Privacy is the is what is a good proxy for that is what's the cost to get information on someone, and when you combine the ready availability and low cost of getting data on people with the footprint that you can get, not just with the employees of a company, but those outside of the protection scheme, even the education or the anti-phishing solutions. And then you combine the publicly available data from things like social media. It simply makes sense to develop a large pool of compromised identities and their associated assets that you can use, not even just in the classic business supply sense, but in the the trust relationships that the people of your enterprise have or your organization with those outside of it. So, family and friends, in addition to business partners or literal suppliers. And so, I would say one of the big developments we've seen over the course of several years, getting that cheaper access, that erosion of public privacy, when combined with the ready availability of data and globalization means You should expect more of these to be coming from outside. And the persistence is there, because the CISO of a given organization can't protect those identities that are outside of its domain.
0: So if this will be a major threat in 2018, what can be done to mitigate the threat?
1: You can put controls in place, programmatic and audit controls to monitor uh, access from the outside, in particular vendors and consultants and what have you, to internal data and to networks. And um, this notion of establishing boundaries and following them, I think, look, uh, we think we tend to think, especially in security, in a far too binary way, things are all good or all bad, just because you can't get the perfect segmentation or the perfect least privilege environment doesn't mean you can't make progress towards those. So being able to adhere to the boundaries and the least privileges and the segmentation as, you, as much as you can, if you can make progress there, it will have a meaningful impact. So it goes without saying, log and monitor external vendors and really get to know your partner's incident response practices in their ECP and DR. It's not a big deal. If you've got a strong relationship with a supplier or with a vendor into your, en- into your environment, go see their sock. Do a birds of a feather. Make sure that you know practices in a very positive way are you're learning from one another. And you will find out along the way if they are suboptimal or if they need help. So you can do it as a practitioner to practitioner thing. You can do it as a formal exercise if you want, but get knowledgeable about what they do as best practices or worst practices within their organization and become familiar with them. I think it's also important to limit the topography available from you know to the attackers by making sure that uh, you know what third-party software is available. Now, you're never going to totally own this, but, of course, educational practices are good, especially around things like installing freeware or, um, uh, shall we say, going commando uh, with uh, administrative (laughs) privileges in the environment. So, uh, pair that back. Again, it doesn't have to be perfect, but if you can make headway here, realize that you'll be denying vectors and paths into the company. And I'm going to emphasize one last thing, which is this notion of resilience in the IT infrastructure. You know, I met some professional runners once, and uh, those of you who know me know I'm, I'm I'm not a runner. But what struck me was their ability to go on really long, exhausting runs. And the best of them weren't the fastest. They were the ones that were able to bounce back and run another race very, very quickly. And so it's this ability to heal, return to normal that's very important. So, you know, have we done the senior supply chain? Absolutely. Have backups, but test your ability to recover from them. Test your ability to recover from them even when those backups might contain the infection so you aren't just reinfecting yourself. So create resilience in your organization so that if that destructionware or ransomware denies you data or interrupts operations, that you have an ability to get operations back up and running and practice it. Get really good at it.
0: Although destructive attacks may be retrograde, they're still happening, and we still need to be prepared to deal with them. Ransomware is less serious because the crooks will generally restore access to your files once you pay the ransom. But when the objective is destruction of your data, restoring from backup is the only solution. Curry says these kinds of attacks are unsophisticated, cheap, dirty, and effective. Numerous malware tools are capable of causing severe damage, so understanding that it will happen someday is the first step. Planning to recover is the essential second step.
1: But then you have to assume it's going to happen. Given a a dedicated opponent, one who is looking for the seams in the system, they're going to find a way to cause damage, in which case you have to say, all right, when that happens, what are the options? And use the time now, not just to build a system, but to build all the processes around it, to build an institutional capability, use the peacetime, if you will, to prepare for when the conflict comes. And I was asked recently at a conference, what do you think of the N-1 philosophy for vulnerabilities and patching? And uh, let's just, you know, that old G.I. Joe adage, knowing is half the battle, isn't true. Most of us, in fact, know what needs patching. And the reason patching isn't happening in business reasons. When you wade into the C-level, if you're a CISO, or when you wade in to see your IT uh, counterparts and say, we've got to patch, we've got to patch, what they're often hearing is, you're going to increase my tech debt, You're going to increase my ticket time to resolve other tickets. You're going to affect my uptime. And so I I would encourage people, especially now as you set goals uh, between the IT department and and, and security or among other departments, make sure you have common goals and make sure that reducing the risk footprint due to unpatched systems is a priority that people are willing to invest in and get innovative around. And then, again, this notion of zero trust or close to zero trust environments and network segmentation, avoid the single points of failure that cause cascades if you can. Um, Isolate, um, have a little heterogeneity, which, of course, translates into more IT complexity, but uh, especially work on reducing privilege, reducing who has administrator rights or root access, and make sure that your environment is only as complex and accessible as it needs to be.
0: Cyber Reasons Sam Curry also says that advanced persistent threats will increase in 2018, so it's important to realize that you can't cover everything. In other words, you can't save every computer, so it's important to concentrate on protecting the data.
1: Don't ignore the long-standing low-level threats that might actually be being used. I think it's important to work backwards from your risk and threat vector analysis it's not just about what matters necessarily to your shareholders or what ip you think intuitively you might have that's a value it's also what you what is available through you downstream as you're part of others' supply chains so revisit at the beginning of the year your risk and threat vector analysis who are you worried about how are they going to come and get in and not just why might they come in to get you but what might they use you to get downstream um, and work from that as a basis rather than trying to cover everything. And, and, and I think doing triage should be the name of the game because you can't do
0: everything. Fileless attacks, these are the ones that use capabilities of PowerShell and Windows management instrumentation, are becoming more important. Both PowerShell and WMI are strong and flexible languages. Destructive scripts can easily be hidden so that they can't easily be found. Protecting against these threats is relatively easy. If users don't need access to PowerShell or Windows management instrumentation, don't expose those functions to them. There are other options, too.
1: I sometimes joke that fileless malware is neither fileless nor malware. But honestly, the prevalence of this is the attack choice attack tool choice, or, or set of tools or toolkit cannot be understated. So uh, some fairly simple things is upgrade to PowerShell 5, which does require a little bit more a diligence and explore the option of activating some of the new features in Windows to mitigate uh, some of the partial downgrade attacks. Also I've, I've said it before the if you don't have a patch management process you really need to get on top of this. You need to start reducing the footprint and uh, again uh, restricting unnecessary scripting languages in the environment. There's several we're doing quite a bit of research into some new dimensions here um, but restrict those and limit access to WMI uh, and some of the other things out there, and, and frankly, there are endpoint solutions and uh, technologies out there that can actively monitor or even get into granular control and authorization depending on what's available of some of these tools. So, um, you know, it, it, if PowerShell is only available to some folks and you can actually scope what they can do, um, you'll often hear it referred to as PowerShell blocking or PowerShell scoping, Um, Look into some of those, uh, but realize that there are quite a few of these toolkits lying around, especially buried in some uh, internal uh, scripting languages and tools as well as Windows. So there's some suites out there of technology that have very powerful scripting languages. Uh, Understand them uh, and limit their use. If you don't need them, don't activate them and limit access to them as well. Uh, the, other thing you, the other thing you can do is you can also create the dummy accounts with certain types of access privileges that are literally canaries in a coal mine that when they're activated, you know that by, it's by an invader uh, who couldn't resist the bait of a juicy administrator privilege somewhere. Uh, you might also want to set some tripwires using some slightly deceptive techniques, uh, but minimize the risk from this by really understanding that this is a highway through most organizations or several highways, and you need to monitor them and try to scope their use and use when they exist, the benefits from the vendors.
0: And if you're looking for good news, breaches are being identified sooner and contained faster. So 2018 really could be the year of the defender.
1: I think the biggest problem we have in in our industry for the last easily 10 years, if not for its entirety, has been the lack of alignment between the security functions and other functions. If you went back to 2001, The CIO used to suffer from this, back when we talked about brick and mortar versus online. No longer does anybody worry about whether the CIO is aligned with the business. They've overcome that. This is the year that that can happen. This is the year that the CISO can overcome that divide and get aligned with the business. Um, uh, One uh, CISO I spoke to um, gave some advice to a room full of people recently and said, uh, she said, uh, if the only conversation about IT risk is happening between the CISO and the CIO, you will fail. And so I'd say the way to make this the Year of the Defender is to is to be inclusive and open it up. And, you know, we, we like the cloak and dagger in our industry. And, and you know, uh, we have uh, conflict at the heart of this. The things that we stop are bad people, for instance. I think instead we can make it more accessible and more open. I think in the new year, I challenge any CISO on the call, and similarly anybody who's a security professional, try to make the first week of your meetings uh, outside of the group. You have to do planning. Get a significant leavening of meetings with other departments to discuss risk, become the chief risk storyteller or the ambassador for risk in the IT stack, and realize that controls are there. The ability to get a rational program in place is there. The ability to affect the organization and, and limit damages there. I'm optimistic about next year, notwithstanding what I said earlier which is that usually the people who are optimistic are the ones who get sneered at when something bad happens. That shouldn't stop us. Come back with your security or risk resolution for New Year's to be to make this the year of the Defender, and I think you'll be well
0: served. Those who work in corporate IT may find that security has finally become a board-level topic of discussion. The final point recalls the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and its motto, don't panic. Nation states are launching attacks but we need to understand what the threat really is.
1: I think there's actually a Cold War happening now. There's definitely skirmishing. I think the image people have in their head is the old hyperbole we had that used nuclear war as the analogy. And uh, we talked about the uh, weapons of just mass cyber destruction, and we talked about, you know, the equivalent of fallout. And I think that that's largely FUD. Uh, when, if and when that happens, it will either be as a tool of another war, in which case we'll have a new battlefield, there's also the integration of these things. But I think cyber conflict is happening now. And I don't think that talk about using nuclear analogies is applicable. I, I think we need to get out of that habit. Yes, the impact is much worse. As time goes on, we could have cyber to be able to have more kinetic effects. But we're not at the point where there's the equivalent of a, of an, of a nuclear bomb going off in a purely cyber sense. Yes, a lot of damage can be done. And, and I myself have engaged in those thought exercises and, and planning for critical infrastructure impacts. But I don't think that they're imminent. And when they happen, we will find a way to respond societally. But let's not fool ourselves. Conflict and war are happening now. And organized crime is laundering money now. Somewhere like North Korea is expected to make a significant percentage of its GDP through cyber crime. If that's not a form of low-level warfare, then I don't know what is. So let's think more continuum, less doomsday, prepare for the FUD, and expect a low level of of warfare to be happening continuously.
0: Sam Curry, Chief Security Officer at Cyber Reason. If Curry's optimism that 2018 will be the year of the Defender is to be realized, we all need to be more cautious and more ready to deal with an attack when it happens, because it will happen. In short circuits, if your computer has an Intel CPU and runs Windows, it probably has a security flaw. If your computer has an Intel CPU and runs the Mac OS, it probably has a security flaw. And if your computer has an Intel CPU and runs some version of Linux, it probably has a security flaw. Perhaps you've noticed a pattern here, and it's not the operating system. In short, if your computer is less than 10 years old and has an Intel CPU, it is affected. If, on the other hand, your computer has a CPU from advanced micro-devices, you're safe. Intel has been very, very quiet about the flaw, and the company is expected to release more information later this month. Linux developers, however, have already made some updates to the kernel to mitigate against the flaw. An operating system kernel is the part of the operating system that, for want of a better description, does stuff. The CPU problem involves what are called page tables and the Linux kernel is being modified to isolate the page table so that one will be used for the operating system and another will be used by the logged in user. The kernel page table isolation or KPTI splits page tables that are currently shared between user and kernel so that each side has its own table and cannot modify the other table. That's a big change in the way computers manage memory, and Linux developer Jonathan Corbett says that this kind of change would normally be debated for years, especially given its associated performance impact. Instead, it's being rolled out in just a week. On the day after Christmas, AMD's Tom Lindacke notified system builders that AMD's processors are safe so long as one default setting is not changed. AMD processors are not subject to the types of attacks that the kernel page table isolation feature protects against, he said. For Intel computers, the change could result in applications running as much as 30% slower. Some applications may see only a small performance hit in the range of 5 to 10%, but others could see performance drop by a third. As noted, Linux developers are working on changes now, Microsoft pushed an out-of-cycle update to Windows users on Thursday. Presumably Apple is working on a fix too. So be sure to watch for upcoming security patches and get them installed as soon as you can. How many times has Fighter Worldwide talked about light bulbs? Well, let's see, including today, I think probably once. So really, are light bulbs high-tech? Incandescent light bulbs clearly are on the way to extinction. If you're still hanging on to bulbs that get hot, burn out all too often, and increase your electric bill, there are some better options, so let's take a look at them. Compact fluorescent bulbs were the first attempt to reduce power usage for lighting, but they had a lot of problems. The most serious problem is the mercury vapor inside the tubes. Mercury is dangerous, but compact fluorescents save energy that reduces the use of coal to generate electricity. Burning coal releases mercury. Now, the bulbs contain less mercury than would be released by burning coal. Less is not none, though, so the bulbs are difficult to dispose of properly. The bulbs also become quite warm when in operation, not as warm as incandescents and eventually that heat causes the ballast that's built into the bulbs to fail. Many people don't like the light produced by these bulbs because it tends to lack a red component. Fluorescent lights have improved, and the quality of light can nearly match that of incandescent lights, but nearly isn't exact. Bulbs made with light-emitting diodes are the most promising. There is no mercury involved. The bulbs use a lot less power than even compact fluorescent lights, and they last for a long time. They are more expensive than incandescent bulbs, but their longer life and reduced power consumption lower their overall cost. LED bulbs do contain lead and arsenic, though, but in tiny quantities. Incandescent bulbs contain no lead or mercury, but they do result in more mercury contamination than compact fluorescents because of their inefficient use of power and the fact that burning coal releases mercury. Light-emitting diode bulbs seem to be the best choice both economically and environmentally. So if you're thinking of buying some LED lights, here are some things to keep in mind. First, we tend to think of light bulbs in terms of watts. That's convenient, but it's inaccurate. Light is measured in lumens. Watts is a measure of power. A 100-watt incandescent bulb produces about 1,600 lumens, so be sure to compare lumens, not watts. And then the color of light, you need to take that into account. For an incandescent look, you'll want to make sure that the bulbs deliver light at about 2,800 to 3,500 degrees Kelvin. That's the way color is measured. The lower the number, the more red and yellow in the light. Neutral bulbs will be in the 3,500 to 4,000 degree Kelvin range. Daylight LED bulbs start at 5,000 and go to more than 8,000 degrees Kelvin. The higher the number, the more blue the light. And if you have a dimmer switch, be sure to buy bulbs that are specifically designed to work with a dimmer. Not all LED bulbs can be dimmed, and virtually no compact fluorescents are compatible with dimmers. And finally, some lamps have three-way sockets. A standard bulb of any type will work in these sockets, but will not offer three levels of light, of course. LED three-way bulbs are available. They are relatively expensive, though. In December, I bought some LED bulbs rated at 2,000 lumens. That's about equivalent to the light output of a standard 150-watt incandescent. They are very bright. The light is 3,000 degrees Kelvin. That's right in the incandescent range. They are expected to have a life of, and I quote the label here, 13.7 years when used 3 hours per day. We'll come back to that in a moment. Instead of 150 watts, though, these bulbs use only 17 watts. Now, these bulbs are in use more than three hours a day, so maybe rating the life in hours might be more appropriate. 13.7 years is about 5,000 days, so at three hours per day, that would come out to about 15,000 hours. Assuming the bulb is on about 14 hours a day instead of three, I can probably expect that bulb to last about three years. Now, electric rates vary by region but one source suggests that a good approximation across the United States is $1 per watt for a device that's powered 24 hours a day. My 150-watt light bulb would be on about half that time, so $75 a year for one incandescent bulb at 150 watts. The LED bulb with an equivalent output in lumens consumes only 17 watts, so the cost per year, $8.50. The economic argument is pretty clear. Assuming that a light bulb is on about 12 hours a day, the cost to run the bulb will be approximately 50 cents per watt per year. So I have a chart on the TechBiter Worldwide website that shows the approximate cost to operate incandescent, compact fluorescent, and LED bulbs with the equivalent light output. For example, a single 1,600 lumen light bulb that's on 12 hours a day will use about $50 worth of electricity per year if it's an incandescent bulb $12.50 worth of electricity if it's a compact fluorescent, and $9 if it's an LED lamp. Take a look around your house. How many light bulbs are on, and for how long every day? Using lower consumption light bulbs, how much might you be able to save? And if you can get more lumens per watt, wouldn't you want to? Well, there are no lumens in spare parts, which you'll find only on the website. This week, the music streaming service Spotify plans to go public in the first half of 2018 and will use an unusual method for its IPO. If you have a teenager, how many social media accounts does he or she have? There's a good chance you don't know about all of them. And we'll reveal the second half of Dashlane's top 10 worst password offenders for 2017, and then explore the three things we can do to avoid being password bunglers. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blynn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.